Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The show was written, produced, and recorded on Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the Bay Area. With concerns about the state of the public education system and the appointment of Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, we are bringing you a solutions-based discussion on popular education. On tonight's show, longtime grassroots educators Anjali Nathupadia and Michael James discuss the roots of popular education. Anjali and I explore community education as a vital alternative to, as some call it, the academic industrial complex. And I sit down with a group of participants from the Grassroots Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Kat Petru. Please stay with us. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. Many folks have been rightly concerned about the state of the public education system in the U.S. since the appointment of Betsy DeVos as the Secretary of Education. Indeed, some have been concerned about schools in the U.S. since their colonial inception. This evening, we'll have a solutions-based discussion about liberation pedagogy and community education as an alternative to the mainstream school system. Some of you might be wondering what exactly popular education is and why it is so important. Tonight, seasoned educators Anjali Nathupadia and Michael James will explain. Anjali Nathupadia is the founder of Liberation Spring, a grassroots adult freedom school started in 2015. She is academically trained as a political scientist, philosopher, and educator. She holds an MA degree in political science from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with specializations in indigenous politics and political theory and a graduate certificate in international cultural studies. She also holds an MA degree in women's studies from San Diego State University. And from 2010 to 2014, she was a fellow at the East-West Center in Honolulu. Her longstanding curiosities centralize learning and teaching as practices of liberation. Michael James grew up in the Fillmore and Chinatown districts of San Francisco, son of an African-American auto worker and Japanese-American homemaker. James has been practicing and developing liberation pedagogy since 1979. Mentored by Paulo Freire and Miles Horton, his work is part of an international community of popular education practices that include the work of the Highlander Center of Tennessee and Idepska of LA, Los Angeles, California. James is currently a training consultant with the Young Women's Freedom Center, San Francisco, and lead instructor with Madres con Poder, an immigrant empowerment project in Marin County. Here are Anjali Nath Upadhyay and Michael James 
on popular education. Michael, thank you so much for coming through to the station. Mm -hmm. It's really an honor to be able to have this dialogue with you. Um, I'm wondering if we could get started by talking about what popular education is. Okay, I'll quote a Nicaraguan popular educator that I met in 1983 because it it corrected some notions that us North American educators had because we were saying, we want to start a popular education movement in the United States. This is back in the 80s. And at this conference in Malagua, the young, young teacher, popular teacher, stood up and said, popular education is not a movement. Popular education is the educational component of the revolutionary process. Mm-hmm. So it was really enlightening for us because we thought it helped us say, oh, this, this is a part of a larger project. In Nicaragua, for sure, it starts with the literacy campaign, and, and it extends out into the villages and into the community, into the trade unions, et cetera, et cetera. It was hard for us to understand in the United States because much of our work was movement-based in a very, very loose way. It was a first-world problem. So popular education is a process that we learned was a, an aspect of all of these um, social movement and revolutionary movement activities from 1960 through the 80s in Africa, in Latin America, in the Philippines, rooted in from liberation theology to um, even leftist thinking, the idea of people empowering themselves by developing their own consciousness and action to make change. So Paulo Freire becomes the principal architect, the original uh, theorist about it, but he's associated with a lot of thinkers at the time who are looking at the idea of the organic consciousness of everyday people, but also flipping the script on sort of the Marxist-Leninist framework that we had most of the 20th century, mm-hmm. the idea that you would have a vanguard that would be the intelligentsia of the movement that would lead the working class, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. And it didn't fit so well in the third world because they people had their own organic dispositions about reality and culture and indigeneity, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of popular, my learning in, in Latin America, it's, it's always a highly political concept and always rooted in the notion, or always rooted in the, the framework of the masses of people, the everyday masses, the working classes, et cetera, et cetera, the peasantry, as opposed to government, the the state, the ruling classes, the people in power, the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. So popular, of course, in the developing world really means the majority of the people, mostly the working people. So popular education was rooted in that, and Freire being an initial architect, uh, writes these remarkable monographs. They also have roots in liberation theology in Mm -hmm. particular. And so they were doing this concept of popular theology Right. Sort of a little bit precedes popular education, mm-hmm. the idea, especially in a highly Catholicized society, the notion that's so counter to traditional Catholicism that the people, the parishioners, mm-hmm. have the power to interrogate their own faith. Right. So they're having dialogue about what does what do scriptures mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of this in the context of the powerlessness versus the powerful in places like Brazil and. Mm-hmm. Peru and Chile and Argentina. Of course, the social movements in Latin America from the end of World War II are 
vibrant and dynamic and there's incredible repression and there's juntas and there's the United Fruit Company and there's mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff going on. And so the, the corrosive uh, struggles between a power in that country I was also creating a lot of popular animation. Right. So those are the roots. That's where my education began about understanding what this education was. But I say that, I open by saying that Nicaraguan teacher correct, we thought we would have a popular education movement in mm-hmm. North America. And she reframed it for us by saying, no, it's the educational component of a revolutionary process. So. Right. Long answer to. Sure. No, thank you for that. Uh-huh. Can you share a little bit about how you first got involved with popular education? I'm a neighborhood kid, working class kid, growing up in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s. The schools are inferior. You know, I went to public school. I went to the same high school as O.J. Simpson, so inferior mm-hmm. high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, education was problematic. Most of my classmates were being channeled into the military for the Vietnam War right. or into menial jobs or into jail. It says, you know, the school to prison pipeline was very, very much active then. And I knew that, as, especially growing up in the 50s and 60s, I was politicized by my li- even my life in the street. This is a very dynamic, you know, KPFA is part of that rootage, you know, then mm-hmm. uh, the, the dynamism of the Bay Area also influenced children like me that were in the street a lot. So. So I had this sort of orientation, the consciousness orientation. I have also a literate mom. My Japanese-American mom was a literate, conscientious person that really talked a lot about change and stuff like that. And my African-American father had a lot of consciousness, too. And growing up in the hood, the street discourse, even from wine and winos on the street to, you know, the corner, street corner people, we we're talking about the movement. You know, we're talking about Medgar Evers. We're talking mm-hmm. about things. The black community was very dynamic at the time. So a lot of my own formation happened from the street and from the families and from the stoops and from the world. And a miseducation I knew was happening in the schools because the schools repressed all of this discourse, if you will, mm-hmm. that was in the community. And so it made us all suspicious. My mother talked. My mother, when she was in the concentration camp as a child, she was interned in Arizona. Mm-hmm. She said she had always had the story of this uh, old white man who was put in to teach history and he would he barely knew the information wow. and he was very condescending and racist to her kids. And she actually said she saw all this I spoke up to him. I said, Why are you so mean? You keep calling us Japs and you really don't even know more than we do. Mm-hmm. It was one of the stories she told me. And you wow. can see how that struck me that wow, mm-hmm. how does a student know as much as a teacher? You know, fast forward to I'm the first person in my family to go to university and I was mentored by a professor John McFadden who had actually studied with Ilyich and Freire at Sirac in Cuernavaca in oh. Mexico. And he worked some with the farm, farm workers and stuff. And he was in the HISCON, History of Consciousness Department. And he mentored a bunch of us in a class called Community Education and introduced us to Pedagogy of the Press, which I think had probably been in publication in the United States for about two years at that point in the 1970 or so. Mm-hmm. So we read that. And of course, like so many people, you know, we wanted to read it, then we wanted to do it. We didn't know what that meant or the implications <laughs> of it. Sure. But as a young person, I, was always, I always liked education and teaching, though I had kind of aspirations to be a graphic designer. I wasn't, even though I grew up in the thinking that, you know, there's a phrase in black community called being a race person mm-hmm. that was still happening back in the late 60s or the 70s. And I thought of myself in that way, but I never thought of myself as a political actor. 
Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the university, that was very strong. It says you're one of the few who get in, then you have to do something with this. And by 1970, the civil rights movement had sort of was in decline. The grassroots movements like the Black Panther Party and stuff like that, and the UFW were rising. And the idea of democratic participation was being considered inside communities. And I think Frary's work spoke really strongly to that, and that's how I got started. So I started reading and studying in 1970, 71, and by the time I got out of school, I thought, oh, I'm going to do something with this, and that's how I got involved with it. I got a fellowship from the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Group. It's there, the, they were called the Memorial then, in 1979 to start a small project in San Francisco. And it was also... Uh, sponsored by the World Council of Churches. Mm-hmm. So we, that's how I got started. And so how do we do, let's do something with this pedagogy in the Bay Area with working class, young adults, mm-hmm. high school, college age people, because that's where I, I, I knew that territory and how to mobilize that territory. Mm-hmm. That's really how I got introduced to it. Thanks. <laughs> You've mentioned Father Freire and his mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. a couple of times thus far. Can you elaborate on what role his work played in the popular educational spaces that you've created and your relationship with him and his work? Well, when we started, we started a little project called Project Literacy in San Francisco in 1979. And I don't know how, I met him in 1980 at a conference. And then in the, that year, I think it was that year, he came to visit our little project. Of course, we were like, oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we rented a station wagon and drove him around the project. <laughs> so uh-huh. and sure. we, we knew we could do that because what people had told us about Paolo. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, pro- I'm one of thousands and thousands of Paolo Freire groupies, Freire <laughs> heads, right? But uh, uh, he visited us a couple of times. And uh, even though some people say, oh, Freire, that's kind of old school and stuff like that. Yeah, well, you know. John Coltrane was old school, so was Billy Holiday. Sure. Old school too, you know. So right. yeah, that's it's an, an, an acknowledgement of the ancestors' mm-hmm. moment, the oh, coyuntura so that they brought in, and then and then us picking up, and now I'm passing it on to thirty somethings that are having their moment and creating it. So then, why do you feel like popular education is necessary today? Popular education is always necessary, even in the form that it was created, because a civil society where social movements find themselves organized need to have their own apparatus, need to have their own process and protocols and methodology governed by the people. Just put it like that. So popular education is always necessary because it's, a, it's education in the service of change. It's education in the service of justice. It's education in the service of transformation. And education as a state construct is always education to reproduce the existing, these existing society, such as they are, bourgeois society. So that's the necessity of to keep it, if we want to keep it to a pure sense of what popular, what popular means. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing these days? Well, the most exciting project, and I'm, a, I'm the, the young people I work with call me an OG. Uh-huh, <laughs> I'm, right. not, I'm not a kid anymore, right? Sure. And so I'm mentoring a real exciting project in San Francisco. It's about 25 years old. It's called the Young Women's Freedom Center. And they're a group of uh, young women. They call, sis, use the word system involved. I mean, they're involved in the criminal justice system. Usually as former ex-offenders and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been around 25 years. They came to their good reputation because they were run by a brilliant sister named Latifah Simon, then Marlene Sanchez and Jessica Nowlin. 
for three years, a little trio of these three young women who had been in the system and survived it and then took over this organization and created a, you know, they created a pedagogy. And uh, I encountered them in the early years. I was doing a workshop and Jessica happened to come. She said, I think we're doing something related to this pedagogy you're talking about. And then that's how we got involved. We got involved with them as a trainer way back then. And then, uh, not like these were a trainer, actually, I was more of a mentor, doing, helping them ground their work theoretically and, and they, uh, trying to build their capacity as teachers because they did these, had these projects called Sisters Rising that they did inside the correctional facilities and with your girls that had gotten out of the system. Really transforming kids, the highest risk young women, leaping over just basic personal development to becoming advocates against the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's bypass just the job skills. Right. <laughs> just cut to the chase. Just to the movement thing. The yeah. thing. So they always had this right. strong political sensibility. And so I'm working with them now because they've gone through a large, large transformation. They became a great, a large project and they were really focusing, they mm, taking a lot of city grants and grants to do support work. And I think that at some point, like a lot of nonprofits, they sort of, it felt like they lost their way because they were kind of doing more service than they were mm -hmm. social change work. I got a call about three or four years ago by Jessica again, who's an older, she's an OG now. And she says, We're, we want to take this back over and take it back to its roots. And then, so the last three years, I've been working with doing educational teacher development with their both their junior and senior staff. And also, I'd like, and I love working with you on this too, because I'm looking at the emergence of women and the implications of women in popular power. Right. I'm looking forward to learning from you more about that. You know, that's why I like to hang out with you, because you're fierce about this, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, we've okay. got to be until gotta we be get fierce. free. That's right. right. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Thank you. I'm glad to be working with you and thinking mm -hmm. about these things. I really look forward to the intersection, the working together with Liberation Spring and these different projects that and follow, maybe follow you, get us up to the Northwest Territories so we can learn some real stuff soon. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, doing what we can. Well, thank you so much for everything that you shared. Thank you. The way Western education has grown over the last few centuries, especially with the rise of industrialization, was basically not to create human beings fully equipped to deal with life and all its problems, independent citizens able to exercise their decisions and live their responsibilities in community, but elements to feed into an industrial production system. They were products with partial knowledge. We moved from wisdom to knowledge, and now we are moving from knowledge to information, and that information is so partial that we are creating incomplete human beings. If we look back at the beginning of so-called education, the agenda was very clear. There was an elite that wanted to train people to serve their needs, to essentially create an extractive economy that served the few at the expense of the many. So there's very explicit literature, very clearly education was there to train a class of people to serve the needs of the elite. I come from the central Himalayan region, of, which is called Garhwal. And the women of Garhwal worked very hard to uh, make sure their kids would have schooling. But of course, schooling was the institutionalized schooling of the kind that doesn't teach you anything about your local ecology, your local culture, your local economy, or your ability to be productive. It basically 
teaches you to be a semi-literate for another system to which you have no entry because you don't belong to the right class, you don't belong to the right privilege, etc. I now go back to those same villages and the women say the worst mistake they made was to think that that kind of education would help. That we have a saying in, in Hindi, dhobi ka kutta na ghar ka na ghat ka, that you know, it's, it's the washerman's dog who does, belongs neither to the place where the washing is done nor to the home. They're, they're in between people and they're falling through the cracks of an in-between world. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard Dr. Vandana Shiva and Helena Norberg-Hodge from Carol Black's film Schooling the World, The White Man's Last Burden. Please check out our website kpfaapprentice.org for a link to the documentary in full. Prior to that, you heard community educators Anjali Nathupadia and Michael James exploring the roots of a necessity for popular education. Building upon this dialogue, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Anjali to learn more about putting popular education to practice in her experience founding local freedom school, Liberation Spring. Anjali, what got you into popular education? I could answer that question on a number of different levels. So my father's family, the Upadhyas, have always been teachers. In Sanskrit, our surname means educator from a certain region of the Ganga River. So a lifetime of devotion to seeking and sharing wisdom has been passed down in our blood for generations. And individually, I've always been an unapologetic nerd. I feel deeply alive when learning and sharing curiosity and was told by folks since I was little that I'd become a teacher. As a teen and young adult getting into activism and community organizing then, I was interested in consciousness, the process of unlearning and what makes transformation most likely. The role of education, of getting people to the point where they can step into deeper integrity, into embodying justice, has always fascinated me and been at the core of my calling. Then professionally, I've been in higher education for my entire career and am now a recovering academic, so to speak. Unfortunately, we know that the academy is mostly inaccessible, perpetuates the status quo, has been corporatized, especially in the past few decades, is increasingly neoliberal uh, and administrated, administered, uh, run by folks that actually don't even have backgrounds in education quite broadly. To me, good education needs to be accessible. So I remember hearing from an auntie that my mother, for example, never found feminist spaces that were accessible to her as a mother during the feminist movement of their youth. So part of me has wondered for my entire life since then, if only the feminist spaces around her had been more welcoming, especially of her as a mother, if she might still be alive today, if she'd have had the supportive and transformative experience that so many of us have had, especially in feminist community spaces, if she'd have had the strength to leave an abusive relationship. So that vision of my mother as a struggling poor mom desperately in need of supportive community to get free infuses this non-negotiable requirement and priority for me that any educational space that 
I create be child-friendly from the beginning. Uh, if it's not accessible to parents, like frankly, much of the dominant educational system is in this country, I'm personally not as committed to pouring my heart and soul into that kind of system. And since I'm not a parent myself, I also see that prioritizing of accessibility as a really important way to stand in solidarity with parents and with families who, of course, also deserve education. So familially, personally, politically, and professionally, education has always been my thing. Can you please tell us what is Liberation Spring? Sure. It's a grassroots adult freedom school that started in 2015 and occupied Huchen, known by most settlers as the Bay Area in California. And LS offers group classes and individualized curriculum in the service of decolonial social change. So we fuse the best of old school feminist consciousness raising and social movement style popular education, in addition to other learning uh, approaches that take seriously practicing freedom through our unlearning and learning that definitely also include land and water-based work. So rethinking schools and the classroom as the primary site of learning. It's also explicitly a place where we get to learn from the wisdom of all of our ancestral brilliance. So in the academy in the U.S. today, the vast majority of curricula being taught still in 2017 is overwhelmingly Eurocentric and heteropatriarchal. So not just, say, learning from publications that were authored by white men, although that is typically still the case in the humanities and social sciences, but also more broadly learning from intellectual traditions that actually still presume that men writing and practicing in Western Europe somehow have more intelligent things to say than our ancestors from all of the rest of the planet throughout all of the rest of recorded human history. That's just frankly anti-intellectual, and some of us are in a place considering all of the social, political, economic, ecological, spiritual crises of a moment such as this um, to have to make it plain and call when the emperor has no clothing and move beyond that level of anti-intellectualism fronting as intelligence in so much of the academy today to actually create spaces that move beyond that kind of mediocrity, so to speak, to actually invite ourselves into a much deeper level of intellectual dedication, devotion, and rigor. Can you tell us what you mean exactly by decolonial? By that, I mean writing the historical and contemporary wrong of settler colonialism. So that original systemic violence to this continent and the first peoples of this continent. We need educational spaces today that are unapologetically decolonial, that take seriously the need for literal decolonization. And this has enormous political, economic, social, and ecological implications. So folks being honest about the U.S. being a settler colonial empire and having, again, accessible, intellectually rigorous spaces to come together to unlearn that colonial propaganda that we're saturated in in this place. And then once we've gotten to a place, right, of honestly unlearning so much of that dominant white noise that we're saturated in within this mainstream culture, being in a place to then be able to remember alternatives that we have 
inherited from our ancestors, not to romanticize them, but to glean what traditions do need to be cultivated and nourished and taken very seriously in this moment in time as a part of our survival, let alone thriving, uh, and additionally being in a place to be able to collectively imagine and learn alternatives for us to quite literally get free. So you also mentioned the phrase consciousness raising, sort of specifically referencing part of the feminist movement, I think you said in the 60s. Would you mind explaining a bit more about what consciousness raising is? Absolutely. So, of course, my personal use of that term is somewhat twofold or multivalent. I'm first and foremost with any conversation around liberation and consciousness talking about my personal ancestral traditions of understanding those terms that definitely predate whether it is, say, a particular form of pedagogy that became popular in uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s in the women's movement in the United States or a sort of Western European-centered understanding of liberation. So for me personally, there are definitely, right, multiple entry points into making meaning out of those concepts. But certainly when I'm talking about, say, wanting to really honor the feminist movement of days past, the particular paradigm of consciousness raising that I'm speaking to there, a lot of people associate with, say, coming together in homes, in circles, say in a certain right racial and socioeconomic space, maybe uh, white middle class women having read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and taking seriously in her language that problem that had no name and in ways that were accessible to them, whether it was around kitchen tables or elsewhere, really learning the way in which so many of the personal challenges and obstacles that they might have been experiencing in their lives weren't actually individualistic, certainly weren't actually rooted in some kind of personal problem or issue that they might have the way that dominant gaslighting or crazy making then and now would have us believe, rather personalizing the political. So Mm. really taking that idea seriously, recognizing the way in which even our notions of the personal and the political are always already interconnected and not getting hustled into the mis- this mythology that there's the personal and right the public mm-hmm. or the private and the public sphere are somehow normal and natural. That's just untrue historically. And so taking it back again, doing something that's frankly more intellectually rigorous than that, also just more realistic than that, honoring that there are systemic and there are institutional sources and reasons, right, causes that explain so much suffering that folks quite often can experience at the individual level. And if they're in a place like the USA where we're socialized to perceive very individualistically, but not to necessarily understand systemic injustice or institutional oppression can quite often victim blame, right, then turn what could otherwise be, say, righteous indignation that could fuel societal transformation for the better inward into, say, depression, horizontal hostility, being divided and conquered. So when I talk about consciousness raising, I'm definitely wanting to appreciate 
a certain right form of unlearning that, especially in the feminist movements in the United States, has come before. So wanting to sort of pay due and respects where appropriate and where necessary to the work of mothers, foremothers, foregrandmothers um, that have right created this legacy and this tradition that some of us are carrying on. So in some ways you've spoken to this, but please tell us more about why Liberation Spring was created. For sure. Alice was started to support folks in sharpening their analyses, their praxis, their solidarity skills, and understanding of how that systemic transformation I was speaking to actually occurs. I'm really concerned about how inaccessible community-determined education is in the U.S. these days, and wanted to create an alternative to the expensive, elitist, academic status quo. It's something that I've been fantasizing about with buddies for over 12 years. Really specifically, at that point in time at the end of 2015, I knew a number of folks who yearned for a community to learn and unlearn in. It was also important for me to continue that legacy of incredible, life-saving, autonomous education that I've been able to learn so much through in different moments in my life. When I was younger, I was able to participate in, for example, the most amazing book study starting at the age of 20 that lasted for years, uh, then was able to participate in and start contributing to the creation of so many different DIY or do-it-yourself community-based educational events and spaces. So after having learned so much from these spaces, just as much, if not more, by the way, as from any of my graduate degrees, uh, from folks that have poured exhaustive time and energy into the creation of those spaces, uh, it's been really important for me to be able to give back in that same capacity to appreciate and to recognize all of that labor that folks poured their hearts and their souls into those kinds of spaces for those of us that are committed to seeking truth, to unlearning propaganda. And it was important for me that for folks in this time and space, especially young women of color, to be able to access those kinds of spaces too. One of the reasons why right now I see this work as so necessary is because of how astoundingly anti-intellectual the dominant society is, especially pop cultural spaces. So it's also really important for me, and I see it as part of my responsibility as an educator, to create spaces, especially again for younger women of color, but for all peoples, where we get to be and play with and move into and embody unapologetic brilliance. Even into the way that we communicate with ourselves, how we understand Understand ourselves uh, to create vibrant subcultures where we can be unapologetic nerds, where we can be unabashed about not only loving learning and loving the sharing of curiosity, but intentionally putting that to the service of our collective liberation. What have some challenges, if any, been with the project so far? So, like so many grassroots projects, funding has definitely <laughs> been a challenge thus far. If mm -hmm. folks would like to donate, liberationspring.com, please mm -hmm. do. So, for the meantime, can you just give us a little bit of information about what Liberation Spring has coming up in the future? I'm 
incredibly excited to be offering some more robust online programming, actually. So I'm in the process of building out an all-online pilot of one Liberation Spring class that is currently called Just Pleasure, Revolutionary Approaches to the Erotic, that will then be available to folks outside of the Bay from anywhere in the world, regardless of your schedule. I'm also really looking forward to mentoring more folks who are wanting to either start or grow their own popular educational programs within their neighborhoods and communities and groups of friends and networks. So that could be the kind of consciousness raising group that I mentioned earlier. It could be a book study. It could start out as a documentary film series. It could be a free university. It could be another freedom school similar to Liberation Spring. But that is frankly vital work in this moment in time amidst all of the challenges that we're facing. And so I also see that as part of my responsibility as an educator that has studied liberatory approaches to education in my research for over a dozen years to be able to make that material available, not just right on campuses in peer-reviewed journals that many people might not ever access or read in their lives, um, but to as many people as are interested in actually taking seriously educating ourselves, unlearning the poison, planting the seeds of inspiration to continue to learn in whatever ways are most accessible to their communities and appropriate to whatever the needs and the challenges are that they're facing. How can folks be in touch with you or get involved? Mm-hmm. Feel free to email us at liberationspring at gmail.com. You can also check out the website at liberationspring.com. We're also on Facebook if you look up Liberation Spring. Our Twitter handle is libspring, uh, and you can definitely donate on the site again at liberationspring.com. Fabulous. And again, we will be posting a link to the website on our page so you can find all of the contact info and donation button there. Anjali, thank you so very much for your time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Welcome back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and you just heard my conversation with educator and political philosopher Anjali Nath Upadhyay on the potency of putting popular education to practice and how you can get involved in the Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring. To share more about the experience of participating in popular education, I sat down with four participants from Liberation Spring. Hi everyone, my name is Sadia Saifuddin. Uh, I'm a Bay Area native and I currently reside in Oakland, California. I found Liberation Spring last winter through a friend who has also been a part of the project for a long time, which was the best thing for my mental health at the time. It really introduced me to a community of people who are committed to education, activism, and really live out the values that many people have an easier time talking about than living. And that has been a really great platform and space for me to explore ideas and projects and my own self-development. So it's a little bit about me and my introduction to Liberation Spring. My name is Nicole Gervasio. I'm an artist currently based in Oakland. I found Liberation Spring or heard all about it in its early stages of coming together. I really respect and honor the space that's been created. I've, I'm learning constantly and really appreciate the community that's come together, specifically the people that 
Anjali and the Liberation Spring community has brought together has constantly inspired me and pushing me in my art and my activism. And I just feel like every day I'm just growing and learning so much more from people's reflections from the syllabus, from the work that we do in class, but also our personal lived experiences. And I hope to keep doing it for the rest of my life. My name's Grace Deal. I am from the East Coast, a transplant in the Pacific Northwest. And the thing that has drawn me initially and back each new course celebration spring has been a place to come learn and unlearn about things that have been bugging me my whole life but i have never been able to find a community of people to discuss that are brave enough to talk about these things and um not just a community but a teacher and powerful curriculum that I just never had covered in any other kind of setting or classes. And the combination of that supportive environment to question all of reality in a way that honors a lived experience that I couldn't find honored other places. And then that combined with, oh, that it doesn't have the, to me, the inflated cost of tuition to the traditional academy. So unlearning and learning while having doing the work in community and not, you know, um, with the sham of tuition costs associated with it, I think is leaves me like economically free to participate in my education even more deeply than when I'm trying to figure out how to pay for um, a more traditional college setting. Yeah, I think that what's in some ways been most meaningful for me has been like the community building that um, has happened. I think of, I think I certainly show up to different spaces with different parts of myself. I think that that's um, something that a lot of people can relate to or maybe sort of, you know, okay, th- these are my, my my sort of like movement activist buddies or, you know, these are my art making buddies or and of course like sort of people in between. But I think sort of finding a space where people want to learn and talk about the things that you want to learn and talk about um, and grow with you is exciting. And knowing that it's a space where your questions and your anger and um, your whole range of, of feelings and thoughts and perceptions about things that are going on around us and that have been going on around us that are heartbreaking, devastating, and must be stopped. It's so um, necessary and powerful to have a space that is sort of free to sheet where you can show up for that conversation as fully as possible. And I think that versus, you know, many experiences that people have had in like certain classrooms or kind of other spaces, like we, um, there's so much intention in Liberation Spring in terms of allowing people to kind of do what they need to do to show up most fully in that space. And that allows the learning to go deeper. and. You know, we, um, something that's been exciting is sort of the, we sort of build in praxis. I mean, I think sort of the idea of um, doing sort of unlearning in community is um, praxis in and of itself, sort of people have already spoken to myriad problems of the academic industrial complex. I think something that you brought up that, that really I have been thinking about since I started attending LS has been the removal of shame and these negative emotions that are 
very often associated with education. I work with students and one thing I see all the time is just this disengagement with the actual process of knowledge and gaining knowledge. And it feels like there's so much lost potential because everything is structured as a, uh, a, a punishment or a reward. So if you do your homework, you'll get the A, but if you didn't do your homework, you're going to lose the points and get that bad grade, which will have you know, consequences later on down the future. And that's so disempowering for a lot of students because it does not take into account all of the things in their life that could be happening that are very real and very important for them. And that really just removes them away from the process of, okay, well, I got this one bad grade, I might as well not even try. With LS, it's a very different approach. Anjali always encourages us to show up and whether or not we have done the homework, whether or not we've done the reading, we are more than welcome to contribute, to talk, to ask questions. There's no shame associated with uh, the pursuit of knowledge. And I think with where our world is at, it's really important for us to remove those negative emotions associated with questioning our world and being able to learn more about our world so that we can be more intentional and more mindful about the work that we do in our everyday lives. And I think that in sort of models um, like this, where there's so much intention around how to make it as accessible as possible in a given moment with the resources we have, that it mm-hmm. makes it easier then for you to make what you're thinking about, learning about, accessible to the people who, you know, to your folks, to who you're accountable to, who you're in community with already. So the fact that Liberation Spring curriculum that has been like so lovingly and thoughtfully crafted is free online. I've shared that with so many people. I've had like little documentary screenings with friends also because like I want to think about these things in community. I want to talk about how I feel about them and learn other people's perceptions. Um, And that's just incredibly invaluable. Like why why is that not... Uh, a, a normal thing for anyone whose goal is to to educate for social change, sort of bare bare minimum, is would be my question. I think another thing about Liberation Spring that draws me back is how collaborative we are. We keep saying the word community, and just like in the environment we come together, it's not one of competition. Where we're where is something that in my experience in education is a feeling of going against your peers vying for a scarce position at the top instead here it's each person moving forward towards whatever the point on the horizon might be for them and the curriculum and the unlearning and the conversation moves everyone forward together and then new possibilities get born out of that process and that is really exciting to be a part of um, the creating as you go and also something that popped into my head is just in my experience I've never come across any kind of curriculum like this that's cuts across so many different disciplines and weaves things together in a way that at least helps me to feel like I'm taking huge blinders off about um, my reality and my lived experience and gives me names for things that have been bugging me forever. And that's just been a huge, um, a huge boon, like to how I move through the world and how I like talk with folks about things. And um, so I just think it's like really, I know I revolutionary, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I don't say that lightly. I think it's also just realistic. Like everyone has space in their life for learning and Liberation Spring and other popular education platforms give space for people who might work a nine to five or nine to six 
job to still invest in themselves, which is something that doesn't happen. I mean, I know there's a big movement in many millennial circles to want to be your own boss and to have your own schedule. But for those of us who that is not a reality just yet, this makes it possible to continue to do things and be a part of like-minded circles that may not have may not be a possibility for us in the absence of popular education. Yeah, and I also love that, like, sort of, you know, on that as well, like, we have had folks, you know, who care for children um, or have other responsibilities like that, and you can come with your kids, and we will um, help, uh, like, be blessed by them and, um, (laughs) you know, and sort of, and and help out as is appropriate, and um, which is, which is super huge. We already talked about this, but the ability to show up just as you are, whether or not you did the assignment or whether you're delirious or you have a child on your hip, um, it's so refreshing to make this space um, accessible to those people who want to keep learning. And then also the ability to share those resources, the entire syllabus online. I've done the same thing as well. I try and share all these resources with everyone that I know because so many people are interested when they hear about Liberation Spring and like the type of community that's been created. I can tell so many people are wanting that and just like you touched upon, debt is a huge thing that's holding people's education behind or just working a nine to five or raising a family and so the ability to even in passing have these conversations and share these these resources with friends and family, I could just feel everything around me just even in the smallest steps or in really big steps things are moving all around me because of this community and part of it is just being able to take this information back to communities that may a not have access to them like we spoke about and also our families right like we come from different walks of life we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds or geographies where some of this information may not necessarily be openly spoken about but desperately needs to be so currently um, the theme for the season is just pleasure and we've been talking about revolutionary approaches to the erotic check out the website if you're interested in the information <laughs> uh, it's all free and actually last weekend I was talking to my mom about it and and I come from an immigrant family. My family is Pakistani, we're Muslim, and we don't talk about sex very often. It's actually considered taboo and almost shameful, or it's something that, you know, many people have a lot of quote-unquote modesty about. And and my mom told me that after she got married, her friends would ask her if she had, if she like had an orgasm, and she didn't know what an orgasm was. And it's so crazy because because these conversations are desperately needed and also you, you know when you start having these conversations sometimes you're pleasantly surprised by how progressive your parents are <laughs> and how supportive she is to like sexual liberation in general um, so that's been rewarding for me is to be able to share this information with others and then also be pleasantly surprised by others reaction and uh, reception to that information and to the knowledge I think it's helped grow my relationships within Liberation Spring, but also in all my communities outside of Liberation Spring as well. And um, this is my second time doing Just Pleasure, revolutionary purchase to the erotic, but I also knew that it was going to be so different than the first time I did this specific course because the group of people are different, everyone's personal perspectives and personal lived experiences in relation to the syllabus is going to be so different. So I knew that each class was going to bring another level of education or awareness to something that a year ago I would not have known. So I'm really appreciative of that too.
these resources have so much to offer and these the people that show up have so much to offer from just sharing what resonated with them or just personal experiences. I want to add also the way that the classroom feels in Liberation Spring is that you can bring your whole self and I would add to that theme this idea of mental capacity, emotions and spirit and physical, like all of those experiences are welcome, including the spiritual side of life into Liberation Spring and that has helped me have a more full more fully experienced the things that I'm learning and have a deeper understanding of them and um one other piece that has been really life-changing for me has been the true intimacy that exists between classmates and with Anjali, our teacher, and the care and cultivation she brings to my personal projects that I have have been brewing and that have kind of blossomed during my time in LS that the curriculum typically speaks directly to. That's been really um, wonderful and an experience I haven't had in, you know, the university, for example. And I think um, something that I've really valued is being in a space where I think there is a lot of, I mean, so I sort of switch between, but I like sort of think of Anjali as a facilitator for, um, for learning in Liberation Spring rather than just a teacher, although like I'm very happy to like learn from her. Um, I haven't gotten, you know, not like not everybody has gotten to like spend as much time with certain kinds of books or with learning from certain kinds of people. And so, so that said, but I think kind of the model with Liberation Spring is that every season that I've been a part of, there's been space made for people to uh, kind of facilitate learning for other people in the space. We We've had retreats where like different people have led workshops and sometimes that's about like trying out um, we're encouraged to um, try offering something that we haven't offered before different people in the space do you know labor around you know art or health or various things and so kind of making space like, I'm thinking of that, like, uh, word incubator um, and sort of maybe, like, taking that back from the tech industry. Um, <laughs> um, but for different kinds of projects and, you know, sort of doing what you can to avoid this sort of dynamic where, you know, it's sort of one person with all of this knowledge that everyone else has to master in this particular way. And, you know, as though you just, like, from your life, your lived experience and other things that, you know, you have been curious about in your life don't also have knowledge also have things to contribute. I think that I appreciate there being intention around that. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA, and that was four participants from the Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring discussing what popular education means to them, and a huge thank you to them all for their sharing and courage in participation. Again, we'll post links to our website, kpfaapprentice.org. That's K-P-F-A-A-P-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E dot O-R-G. So you can explore Liberation Spring and check out Carol Black's film, Schooling the World, The White Man's Last Burden, which again, you heard from Vandana Shiva and Helena um, Hodge. I'm totally blanking on her last name, but you heard that clip earlier. And that film gets into land-based education that has been around 
since time immemorial the world over and really illuminates the impact of colonization on mainstream education. It's an incredible, incredible film. And you can watch it for free online. So that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Um, I want to also give a shout out to... Uh, Group 41 for their incredible work the last year. They graduate tomorrow. Congratulations. Please tune in next week to Full Circle for Group 42's intro show. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Kat Petru. And again, special thanks to Anjali Nathupadia and Michael James, who you heard in our first beast for their work on this show. Thank you to Laura on the ones and twos and CVG and Sharon for tech assisting tonight. As always, thank you for joining us on Full Circle. Please stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.